Before we get to the podcast this week, did you know that Bomb Chevrolet Buick is focused on treating customers right from the start? Since 1928, almost 100 years ago, Bomb has been guiding Central Illinois drivers through the car buying and servicing process, helping you make the right choice for you. Visit us today and be treated like family at Bomb Chevrolet Buick. That website is Bomb, that's B-A-U-M, ChevyBuick.com, BombChevyBuick.com. Most importantly, if you buy from Bomb, a car, a van, a truck, new, used, and tell them that DOD or Flow sent you, get this, you get a free DOD and Flow Racing subscription for life. That's like until you're dead. There has never been a better deal than that. BombChevyBuick.com. Buy now and you get Dirt on Dirt and Flow for life. Speaking of, if you haven't subscribed to Dirt on Dirt or Flow Racing, like seriously, what, what are you waiting for? By the way, if you subscribe to Dirt on Dirt, you get Flow Racing for free. So one $150 subscription not only gets you access to the number one news source in the history of dirt late model racing, Dirt on Dirt, with all of its highlights and breaking news and photos and original editorial and video content, but it gets you access to the entire Flow Racing network that includes every event live, like the World 100, the Dream, now the Chili Bowl, the Tulsa Shootout, the All-Star Sprint Cars, and soon-to-be Flow Racing Night in America our late model mini-series, if you will, next year that we're launching in 2021. $150 easily, the best value in racing, the DOD and Flow Racing subscription. Also, now is the best time to subscribe. All of our best of 2020 content is coming. And then January, the Ice Bowl Live, the Wild West Shootout Live, and DOD's award-winning Speed Weeks coverage that starts in January this year, January Speed Weeks for the first time ever. And now we'll be all over it. The best subscription in the biz. Get it now for $150 one-stop shop. That's it. Let's get to it. And most importantly, welcome to DirtOnDirt.com. This is the Rigsby Report for the week of November 30th, presented by, new sponsor by the way, TriStar Engines and Transmissions, a great company out of Baldwin, Wisconsin, TriStarEngines.com, check them out again, great company to our neighbors from the north, Wisconsin there, and I feel like I've made a a bit of a habit of apologizing at the beginning of the Rigsby Reports, but I'm going to do it again this week. I think back to January when I launched this podcast, and the idea was, okay, I'm going to do this at least 20 times this year. Not quite twice a month, but but close to twice a month. And damn it, I can't wait. We're going to have 20 Rigsby reports this year. And then COVID happened, and it sort of shocked the world, and we had to create content around the racing world shutting down. And then things, once we got going again at Flow, just exploded. Eldora, the All-Stars, Flow Racing Night in America, uh, when we brought late model racing back. And I'm sure you've seen it here recently. The Chili Bowl will be live on Flow Racing. And for me, which is part of my job, or to go out and get deals like that, it's very time-consuming. And in the last 14 months, we have grown to the largest online motorsports provider in the United States, and we've really had no time to breathe. And I know a lot of people have said to me, you know what, I know you've been busy with that other stuff, but we miss you doing on-air stuff. Uh, And I miss it too. Um, And suddenly, I I can kind of, 
see it a little bit. I can kind of see the light. I'm getting my head above the water a little bit. I'm getting, I'm getting out from under it a little bit. My schedule will not be quite as demanding. I'll still have, you know, the Wild West shootout and speed weeks, and I'll still go to the Chili Bowl now a little bit and stuff, but it won't be as bad next year. We won't have quite as many deals to sign because most of our deals are three, five, or 10-year deals in the case of the Chili Bowl. And I can get back to what is one of my favorite things on the planet, and that's creating content for this website and now for Flow Racing also. So that's my commitment to you. If there are 12 Rigsby reports this year, and that's what it'll end up being, it'll be 12, there'll be 20 next year. If there are 20 video casts this year, there's going to be 28 next year. I can see the light, and I want to say thanks for hanging there with me because it has been a wild exhausting ride the last 14 months, but we're starting to come out of it a little bit. Our team's getting bigger, we're expanding, and I, and I can start to see the light where I can dig back into doing what what made Dirt on Dirt, uh, when I want Flow Racing to be, made it what it is, and that's the content creation. Today's guest for this uh, podcast, I'm wildly excited about. It's DirtOnDirt.com's first employee. It is the greatest journalist in the history of Dirt Late Model Racing, and also someone I consider a dear friend, and without him, I think I'd literally be dead in a gutter somewhere. That's uh, Dirt on Dirt's chief editor, and in essence, with Amber and I, co-founder Todd Turner. Literally, no one on the planet knows more about late model racing than Todd, and he and I had an unreal chat about 2020 in Dirt Late Model Racing, about what the future holds, about some of our favorite random moments in late model history. And for those late model nerds and junkies out there, his career documenting our sport, everything from Dirt News Digest to National Dirt Digest to now his 14th year at DOD, which is unreal. If you love late model racing, you need to listen to the talk that Todd and I had. Uh, It's pretty remarkable. I'm I'm excited for everybody to hear uh, the conversation that he and I had. First, I've got some stuff. Uh, we're about two weeks away, maybe less, I think, from releasing our Flow Racing Night in America schedule and what we call you know, Late Model Night in America, which is in essence what it is last year. And we do have a final list of nights and races. It's going to be 10 races starting on Wednesday night, March 17th, and going all the way through late October. So it's 10 races across eight months. And, and a point I wanted to make on that is this. I've been getting a lot of questions from people, and maybe they've heard some rumblings from Lucas Oil or the World of Outlaw folks or, or any other series release or any other series really, who had questions about what exactly we're doing here. And let me be very clear: these events, again, are ten races across eight months, and in no way is this intended to compete at all with lucas or the outlaws or again any even major regional series like ray cook does or anything like that because i know those guys are have questions too and that notion to me is almost laughable that either a we would attempt to compete with them because i know that wouldn't be good for the sport or that it could in any way be seen that way both of those things are just um are kind of shocking to me honestly i've heard that there's some uneasiness about what we're doing out there and it almost was surprising to me in that in my mind, I'm thinking, oh, these are these are great. They're all midweek. They're Tuesday, Wednesday. I think there's one Thursday, maybe one or two Thursdays. One, I think. And then in no way do these interfere with what anyone is doing. They're not scheduled on top of literally, as far as I know, any other dirt late model event on the planet. And they're also they don't encroach geographically on anybody. Most of them are four or five or six hours from the weekend race 
you know, that, that would be nearest to them, you know, several hundred miles. I just thought it was worth saying. I've had enough people reach out to me and say, hey, man, I don't know if Lucas or the Outlaws or Ray Cook or Ultimate or the Summer Nationals are happy with you. And I get this sentiment, but again, I wanted to publicly say, let's look at the 10,000-foot view here. This is 10 races across eight months, barely a race a month, not scheduled on top of anybody else. It's not only in no way competitive, uh, and I wouldn't even call it a tour, it's a mini-series. We're going to have a small points fund, but you, you don't even have to attend every event to win the points. <laughs> so it's really not a tour. If anything, I can see you know, where it could enhance late model racing across all tours, um, financially and everything. So I just feel very confident when the schedule comes out, people are going to see it and go, oh, okay, Rigsby, this is really cool. And it's a nice standalone mini-series across eight months that does not affect anybody. So I don't know. I've been hearing some things, and I just wanted to get that out there and, and publicly say that. A few more thoughts. I will really miss Leroy Rumley, uh, Dirt Late Model Hall of Famer who passed away recently, father of Kevin Rumley. Leroy's impact on the sport of dirt late model racing was pretty remarkable. And what's kind of funny to me is that so many people only really became aware of him as quote unquote Kevin's dad or the guy that owned all of JD stuff during the magical 2015 run. But he had put his imprint on the sport of late model racing long before that. You know, quick personal story during that 2015 run when he was at Fairbury, Leroy and I spent about 20 minutes in JD's hauler talking to each other. And I'll never forget what he said to me when I asked him, I said, Leroy, do you ever get tired of this racing thing? And he said, there's a lot of things I am at a racetrack, but tired has never been one of them. And I thought that was beautiful, right? He's basically saying in my 60 plus years of doing this, I'm always, this is my happy place. I'm happy at a racetrack. I never forgot that. And I try to take a little bit of that mantra with me. Um, And I think back to when Leroy and I had that conversation five years ago. He passed away at the age of 84 last week. He really is a true legend of our sport. And I'm thinking about Kevin and the guys. Uh, LR will be be very missed. Um, One last thing. I'm sure many of you have seen on Facebook, West Virginia Motor Speedway is reopening in 2021. And I have to be honest about something. This is straight honesty from the heart. When Cody Watson reached out to me, and told me the plan, I told him, I don't think it's a good idea. I don't. I don't think it's going to work. The place was a little too big when it was open. It will cost you too much money, and I just think it's too far gone. Fast forward about four months, and it really is quite staggering the transformation he and his team have put in there. It looks maybe as good as it has ever looked, and I encourage you to find West Virginia Motor Speedway on Facebook and check it out. The point I'm getting at is, good for Cody. In a sport full of jaded assholes, and I probably get accused of being a jaded asshole sometimes, here's this kid from West Virginia who is, and I have this in all caps in my notes, he's a true believer in something. And in this case, it's West Virginia Motor Speedway. He and his family own Tyler County, and that is a West Virginia staple. But WVMS is a is a place that folks from out there treat like a god, that place. It really meant something to them. And in the face of just a massive uphill climb, seriously go look at the before and after photos. I am not kidding you. It is staggering what they have done in West Virginia Motor Speedway, taking a, just a completely shuttered facility. We need more Cody's. In the face of people like me who are telling him, this isn't going to work, he said, no, I can do it. And so far, he's, he's doing it. And I'm not here to make predictions about where West Virginia Motor Speedway is going to end up in five years. 
But right now, in a cynical world full of people who hate everything and who are generally just assholes, here's a 31-year-old, I say kid, 31-year-old kid who's a true believer. I love that. I think it's romantic about racing, and damn it, I'm pulling for him. I I told him that it wouldn't work, and here he is so far proving me wrong. I'm hoping that that belief pays off, and I hope you will support him too. Let's get to Todd. I'm going to make this statement, and I don't really think I'm overstating it. I'm going to stand behind it. Todd Turner is one of the most important figures in the history of dirt late model racing. Now, I don't know that I'm, I'm putting him on the Mount Rushmore with like Earl and CJ and Billy and Scott, but I don't know that people truly appreciate that he likely isn't only the greatest journalist in the history of our sport, but he might be the greatest journalist in short track racing history also, and I really believe that. He was a co-founder of Dirt on Dirt with Amber and I, and he was the first employee that we had and someone that I am very, very proud to call a good friend. Chief editor of DirtOnDirt.com, Todd Turner, sits down with me now for a candid interview about uh, about everything, really. Todd, you and I have worked together for over 13 years now. I have known you for north of 20 years, though. I know that we've done shows together. You and I have been on the air together a lot, but I don't think I've ever really interviewed you like this, have I? Is this the first time I've actually ever really put the full Rigsby full court press on you? (laughs) I believe that to be true, and that that makes me a little fearful, but I'll I'll be able to handle it. (laughs) And honestly, one of the things about Rigsby Report, you helped me conceptualize it, is we do not give the questions out ahead of time, ever. Um, so Todd's got nothing here. He, he's coming into this completely blind. So I understand why he's a little <laughs> apprehensive about it. Um, this year, Todd, I want to start with some 2020 stuff before we get into your career and everything else. Uh, this was a year unlike any other, it, it, you know, dirt late model racing in the face of the only global pandemic that it will have ever faced. And we hope that it ever faces. What did we learn this year about our sport? What did we learn about dirt late model racing? Well, I think normally when I try to describe my job or this sport to people, I kind of tell them it's it's kind of the underbelly of auto racing or, or maybe the underbelly of sport. And, and in this and in this type of year where the highest profile things were were targeted and and made sure that everything was going okay, being the underbelly of the sport or of racing was really turned out to be, you know, you could fly under the radar a little bit. Not that not that we want to be uh, you know, breaking breaking rules and protocols and such, but but our sport could kind of continue to function and it kind of took us baby steps to get back into it. But but once we figured out how we could make this work as an outdoor sport uh in this way, it really is amazing the sport was able to uh to not only keep going but thrive in many ways. I mean there was there's lots of uh, lots of parts of the sports that didn't that didn't have the season they wanted for sure, uh, tracks or drivers or whoever. But but overall, the the, the sport uh, kind of uh, maneuvered through this season is is quite remarkable. So basically, being niche, and we are niche. You and I talk about it. We're the niche of the niche, the niche of the niche. Uh, I, I think you're kind of intimating and saying. That was to our benefit. Sometimes we feel like it's to our detriment, but I think we both agree it was to our benefit this year, right? Oh yeah, I mean, I think that's exactly that's exactly it. And it's almost like maybe I don't think any of us really pieced that together at the very beginning of, you know, when things started to shut down and such, but 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 yeah, that's exactly what happened. We were 
you know, flying under the radar, <laughs> so to speak. And, and, uh, and once, uh, once everybody kind of got their footing and kind of figured out how they could make this work, uh, it really, uh, really was uh, impressive to watch, watch it all hum along. You know, in a weird way, as different as this year was, when it came down to it, it didn't, to the points you're making, it didn't actually feel all that different. We only missed a few crown jewels. They were important ones, the World, the Dream, the PDC, Knoxville. Um, but, you know, the rest of the crown jewels happened. We lost a ton of March and April, but we always lose a ton of March and April with rainouts. Again, I don't want to sound insensitive about a global pandemic, but I also don't think it felt all that different. Am I wrong about that? We have this weird year that was weird for for the COVID reasons, but when you sit back and look at the season and we run the numbers on all the races people competed in and guys like Dennis Herb still racing 90 times, it wasn't that different. Am I crazy or not? Well, I think that's right. I mean, I think you kind of had to remind yourself every once in a while. Like occasionally I would, you know, somehow, you know, the Eldora races, oh, that's the dream. That's a World 100. No, no, it really wasn't. And there was nobody, <laughs> no spectators there. But, you know, when I think about Strickler, when I think about McCready, I, I think, oh, those guys were at the, Oh no! Wait, those weren't the same races. So sometimes yeah. I, you would have to check yourself of like, wait, this isn't quite the same. But yeah, when you were just kind of going week to week, it was uh, it was very similar. And you know, it's kind of hard to it's kind of hard to wrap your head around all that and why it was so different, uh, but why it was also so similar. You know, it was it was a strange season. You're the hardest. I, I say this all the time. No one works harder than you. You're an absolute. A- asset to the industry, the company, everything you touch is gold. Did it feel different from you from a workload perspective this year? Because I know I felt busier than I've ever been. I know, you know, Derek's sitting in the studio with me now. Derek, you know, Derek's just head down grinding. I'd imagine Todd Turner's workload was pretty similar, even in the face of a global pandemic. Yeah, I think that, you know, at the beginning, I think, you know, we went into mo- the mode of like, oh, what, how are we going to cover this? And we really did cover it as, kind of the news part of how this sport was going to deal with with a, a health crisis like this and that and we really went strong at that for about a month and then when the the first races began there was such a focus on those first ones yeah. that we really you know we were really into those even though there wasn't much racing and then all of a sudden before you could kind of like get your feet <laughs> under you're like wait a minute we're we're racing again it's it is we are going full out yeah, like uh, I was thinking when we do this year-end stuff, which, you know, I know you guys have been working on and I've been working on. At first I thought, oh, you know, some of these driver victory totals, I'm going to have to kind of adjust that to make it fit uh, how how it would have been in a normal season. Well, not too much. Now, some drivers didn't get to race as much, but we have guys winning 20 and 30 races, and we have guys getting to race 50 times. And, and as you said, the Dennis Herb-style guy who, who could still race a million times. So it's, <laughs> it's amazing that, uh, that it wasn't, you know, we call it a coronavirus shortened or hampered season, but it was, it was only mildly hampered in, in some ways. The demise of our sport has been discussed for a long time, right? Like I, I even feel like you and I 20 years ago were like, well, what is the future of dirt late model racing? But if we can survive this, can we survive anything? Or is that not the right way to look at it? Uh, I I would be leery to look at it like that. But, but what this was and how it turned out, as we talked about before, this sport was able to handle that and to uh, you know thrive despite that. Uh, I'm not. I think you know the biggest fears would be things about 
um, I guess, uh, you know, people being against uh, auto, on automotive motorsports yeah. in general and things like that. I think that that would be a bigger fear. I think. I think as long as like our little corner of the world is kind of being able to do what it's able to do like now, no matter what else is going on, I think we will be okay. Uh, but uh, but I don't think this this uh, this doesn't make us immune from from what else uh, might come down the road. If you had, to, and I think that's a good way to look at it. Before I get to my next question, because I think Ben and I were talking about this the other day, Ben Shelton, and he's like, "Man, if we can make it here, I think we can make it anywhere." And I just I felt like, eh. I kind of in the same boat you are of it doesn't just because we survived this thing doesn't mean those 10 things that still could have gotten us in 2018 still couldn't get us right. <laughs> it could still get us down the road. Yeah. I just, uh, yeah, I'm scared. I'm as clueless as we were about how this <laughs> would turn out. How are we going to be any smarter about how the next thing turns out? And I don't have any, any great doom for the sport. I think our sport, I think there is some resiliency to this sport that it will keep going no matter what. Uh, but this 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 latest thing did not turn out to be one of those things that was really, really dooming as it looked uh, at the very beginning. If you had to pick out your favorite moment of 2020, what was it? Mm. Um, oh, my goodness. That's tough. I mean, <laughs> I guess th- this is bad because it's not a favorite but the the Kyle Strickler thing I mean it's terrible for him I that's not his favorite (laughs) anything but but especially with the the coverage of uh, all the video coverage of the behind the scenes stuff and and the fact that it is on such a big stage and just such a you know everybody could identify with him what a horrible thing this was to go through having a, a blown tire in the chance to win not only a lot of money, but the biggest race of your career. And it was just, uh, you know, as I was talking before, you know, I thought maybe, maybe this will be here. We won't have a lot of things, but no, as we review the season, there is a million of these moments like this and, and things that are still, uh, that still stand out. And that one just, you know, him him sitting on the ledge of his car with his head on the roof. I mean, that's just, that's gut-wrenching. And not to spoil our best moments piece, but the Strickler piece is on there. When I was doing the voice work for it, I was it was weird to even, I think I said in my script for best, best moments, like, it's weird to even call this a top moment, but I don't know what the hell else to call it. So here we are, Kyle Strickler being yeah. heartbroken at Eldora. Uh, that has to be on there. And I think that first race back at Rays, right? That race at Tri-County, the first late model race back in the United States of America. I'll never forget that night. Uh, that was, and I think just having my entire team and our entire team, Todd, with us that night on air and all of us collectively were a part of it and the, just the, the, the felt normal for a night kind of aspect. That, that was pretty special that night too. Yeah, I don't, I, don't, I don't think you could have predicted how all that turned out and the anticipation for it and how this race, you know, just when all of the eyes are on the sport on one thing, you know, usually it's the World 100 or this big race or, or some, you know, enormous event. Well, here we are at Little Tri-County, you know, <laughs> that, 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 that most of the people watching on pay-per-view couldn't find if you gave them a map. <laughs> and, and all of a sudden, all the eyes are on that and everybody is, you know, and it's a social media, you know, frenzy because everyone is just pent up and, yeah. and is this going to work? And, 
Now, are we going to get back to racing? And then all of a sudden here, Ray Cook and his bunch and, and all the drivers that went to that, it turned out to be, uh, yeah, I mean, it was just, it was, it was a remarkable night for sure. We all sort of agree that Brandon Shepard is the best driver in the country. I, I shouldn't put words in your mouth. You agree with me, Brandon Shepard's the best driver in the country right now. Is that correct? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, secondly, how much better is he than everyone else? I, I'm going to leave that a little open-ended and let you decide, is he just that way better than everyone else? Or how do we answer that? Because once again, for the third consecutive year, he's the driver of the year in the country uh, with no signs of slowing down. Um, I guess, I guess, and, and, and uh, I don't want to be misunderstood in that, you know, I'm not giving him the answer of, oh, well, of course he is. He's with that great team. <laughs> But there is that part of it. He he and him, uh, of himself is clearly talented, and and it's just like he has like he has such control of his career and his driving and what he does at such a relatively young age. And then you couple him with this team, uh, the rocket the rocket chassis house car, and it's just I mean that that combo puts him above everybody else a little bit. Where I think he would. He would probably be in the mix with those guys we're all talking about, you know, this year, Overton and Owens and McCready. Uh, I guess those are the top four this year. But but Shepard is he 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 clearly is a notch above those. I mean, those that victory total and, and again in a season when thirty you know, could could have been could have been short curtailed somewhat. He's racking up more than thirty victories. I mean, it's it's remarkable. I, Brandon, I mean, I'll never forget. I guess maybe I'll talk about this a little bit. But you know, when we were cover, covering the summer nationals, what seems like back in the old days, and Brandon would be helping, you know, his dad Steve there for a while. And I remember, I remember, I think it was at Kentucky Lake, the very first time he is uh, Brandon is going to make a summer national start. He is still yet to shave. He's standing here <laughs> by his car. And I kind of go up and talk to him. I'm like, oh, so you're going to race? He goes, yeah, I'm going to run. I don't know if he's going to run them all, but I'm going to, you know, I'm going to run a bunch of them. I mean, he is, I don't know how old he was. I can't even compute how old he was then, but it was just like to go back to then and to see what a quick, quick progress he made and then to where he is now. It's just, it's head scratching to me, you know, somebody to watch someone do what he's done. And you know, you I think you bring up something. He doesn't ever get credit enough for how smart he is. And I don't just mean on a racetrack. You said something that I don't think has ever been said about Brandon Shepard, how in control of his own destiny he is at the age that he's at, right? Um, it, Brandon doesn't mess up. Like, Mark runs a tight ship. Brandon doesn't screw anything up. Brandon's smart. He's smart enough to know exactly how to, to you know, manipulate's the wrong word, but to orchestrate that entire situation and he knew he could win 15 or 20 races a year in his family car, but he is so smart. He knows that, you know, this with this team and this pairing and doing it the right way, I just don't think he gets credited enough for that, right? I think everyone just looks at Brandon. Derek always jokes, you know, rosy cheek Brandon. You know, he gets out of the car and his cheeks are all rosy and he's smiling and stuff. <laughs> he's a lot more shrewd than I think people give him credit for. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, of course, being a, a media guy, I'm, I'm all about how somebody talks and how they answer questions and such and i know that victory lane stuff can get kind of monotonous and oh, stuff. he does but, do it monotonous he, yes he does well, do that <laughs> there, there is a part of it for sure but but if you read between the lines and hear some of the things he says or when he goes off script he still has that very very much of awareness yep. of what is going on and what 
what his career is and what his what he needs to do, and it's it's impressive to me. It, I mean, I I my when I was his age, I don't think I was. I mean, I look back and I think I was a dumb kid. <laughs> he he seems much more in, in the position he's in, which is so high profile and stuff. He just seems to really, you know, have an awareness about all that. That that it, his maturity, I guess, is is very impressive. Not only as a racer, but but in going through what he is going through in a in a hope high profile situation like that. What was the best under the radar thing that happened this year in our sport that not enough people are paying attention to that they should be paying attention to? Oh my, that's tough. Um, you are the king of under, guess, under the radar, Todd. You know all the yeah. above it, below it. You know, <laughs> you know all of it. Well, I, I get. I guess I, in, in my head is still swimming with all this like uh, best of twenty twenty statistics and stuff from all these drivers, and that is what it is. I'm mostly looking for under the radar stuff. Everybody knows Owens won twenty races, and everybody knows who won at Eldora, but we're looking for those you know, lower level drivers who have had outstanding seasons. And also a couple of those out there who I, and I knew those guys won races, but the amount they won, uh, Justin Williams from Virginia there, he ended up winning, uh, 18 wow, races, I did 18 not know features that. out of 26 starts. And a lot of those are weekly shows, but regardless, if you're, if you're starting 26 races, and you're winning 18 times. <laughs> that's Impressive. And he won that $10,000 race at Nashville Bridge, which was big. And then Corey Dumpert out there in, in Nebraska, uh, he won the won the IMCA title. He he, he co-won co it last year, but he won the whole thing this year. And he won 20, I guess, 26 or 27 races uh, all over the place. You know, lots of weekly stuff with that IMCA stuff, but also with the Malvern Bank Tour. You know, so it, I, I guess that that's when I can make my plug for Make sure and read all those like state by state capsules, and you'll you'll see some under the radar stuff. And you're like, wow, I didn't know that this guy was you know had that good of a season or whatever. And that stuff is kind of fun to uh, fun to unearth here at this time of year. Todd Turner's path into dirt late model racing isn't exactly like a lot of our paths into the sport. For me, of course, you know, I'm five months old and I'm in the grandstands at Fairbury, right? Um, born and raised around the racetrack at Fairbury in Farmer City. Your path was a little different, though. You didn't exactly land in it. You weren't betrothed into dirt late model racing like Derek and I were. Take me through your path and sort of how you discovered the sport. Because as prominent of a figure as you are now, I always kind of find your path into the sport a little interesting. Well, I I did always love racing and cars. And I, it's funny because my dad is not, not like a big motorhead. He does he does appreciate competition and racing and stuff, but he used to take us to the the asphalt track in Louisville back when I was a kid. It was called Fairgrounds Motor Speedway. And it was, a, I think, a, an accomplished track for that era, and it would host ASA races and uh, ARCA races. And, and so there were some big-names guys there in the 70s that I saw. Well, eventually that track closed, and when it did, I guess we just didn't go to the races for a while. Then Charlestown, which is across the river, uh, and pe- to, to orient people. So Brownstown, Scottsburg, uh, Charlestown, those are some of those southern Indiana tracks. Now, I didn't know about Brownstown. Charlestown was very close to my hometown in Louisville, just across the Ohio River. And so we heard, hey, they got this, this uh, 
this uh, oval track in Charlestown, and they race. And we're like, well, let's give it a try, you know. And it was dirt. It was going to be our first time going. How old were you and, at this time? Like the first time you went to Charleston? I, I think I was a freshman in high school, okay. maybe. Probably, so, you know, 14 or whatever, 14 or 15. But, but what cracks me up is how dumb we were. We get out there, <laughs> and the cars are, and they're like, and they're I think it had rained that day, and we're like, oh, no, you know, is it going to rain it out or whatever? And so we were, had some concern about that. But when we get there, the track is just a muddy mess. And we're like, wow, it is it is bad. Like, I don't know how this is going to work. And then all of a sudden, here comes the water truck pouring more water on it. We're like, what? world are they doing you know these, these are we are complete asphalt racing people and then they come out and i remember specifically they packed the track going the other direction which i have seen some tracks do but that kind of threw me off a little bit too but we got to see the cars when they came out there and it was uh and it was cool and of course the night turned out to be you know fantastic uh, Mike Jewell would have been one of the guys that uh. would have been there i don't i don't know all the guy all i don't remember everyone but like Petro was there. Uh, now Charlie Glotzbach, who raced a lot of asphalt uh, races in Louisville, and he ran some of the Jackson 100 and some at Brown. Found out he was there, and that's and that was our connection. It's like, oh, there's an asphalt guy out here. So, so that was cool. But that was the first time, and I just fell in love with that. Um, that those late models are just so, and they're so much more powerful on turf than asphalt. I, I don't know if everybody understands that, but if you go to if you go to a late model asphalt race, especially these days when they're running crates or lower powered motors, it is, it is not at all the same thing, in my opinion. I mean, their late models are so much more aggressive and loud and slinging through the corners. It just, you know, I was in. Not to uh, not to date you here, but how old are you? Said you're 14. What year would that have been? So your first late model race at Charlestown is what year? So. 1980 or 81, maybe. Ugh, what a I great think. time to come yeah. in, though. I mean, Charlie Schwartz oh. is winning races. I just, I mean, it's just, what a great time to be introduced. Yeah. Yeah, you know, there's late model fans, who, and I wanted people to have that context on you a little bit. There's late model fans who are going to listen to this next part, and they're going to absolutely love it because it was some of the coolest stuff that has ever happened in dirt late model racing and literally was industry changing. So that was the early 80s, right? Fast forward to 1995. You are a newspaper reporter at the time. At the and, and correct me if I'm wrong here anywhere, Todd. You're a newspaper reporter at the time at the Messenger Inquirer in Owensboro, Kentucky. And while you're working there, you launch, uh, forgive me for using this term. I don't mean it in a bad way. You launch this little rag, online rag, called Dirt News Digest. And in essence, Dirt News Digest is an email newsletter um, that literally was not only groundbreaking but it changed the sport forever this is a moment in time i am not here i'm not literally sitting here right now interviewing you if dirt news digest does not launch in 1995 for those that don't know todd what was dirt news digest i want to make sure i have the background story on it because i still have printed out many things from it describe it and in 1995 what you were doing and what exactly was taking place with dirt news digest so, so actually, I was a copy editor. A sports copy <laughs> okay, editor I'm sorry. At, at the, at the, that's okay, though. So I wasn't going out and reporting. Uh, I was working in the office. Okay. But a uh, uh, huge racing fan, though. You know, I, as I worked there and I actually had a job where I, like, was making money, uh, I was going to races like crazy. And at some point, I did, you know, I got 
AOL, you've got mail, email in like 1992. <laughs> and at some point I did kind of piece it together. I'm like, wait a minute, this is a way to reach other people. And I don't, I don't people in a broad way, you know, kind of having your own newspaper. Uh, and before that, you couldn't do that. I know it's hard to, especially for younger people to understand, but, <laughs> but the way internet and the way the internet changed things and the way we didn't realize it was going to change things is, is hard to hard to even fathom. But but at some point I realized, for, like the sport we talked about being kind of the underbelly or being uh, um, being kind of a, a niche sport, it was the perfect way to communicate with those people. You know, I cannot send out a, uh, send out a newspaper to all those people nearly for the cost I can send email. So at some point, I'm just kind of pieces together. And I think, you know, I should start doing, I mean, I'm going to all these races. I'm, you know, a journalist. I know how to do this stuff. I ought to write and do this stuff and start sending it out. And I'm, I'm serious. This all came about in like, I don't know how many, uh, all of a sudden I know one weekend I did it and it was too late to stop it. You know, once, <laughs> once I got going, People loved it. I mean, the the emails and the 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 response I get and remember from people uh, who were getting these race reports, who were used to waiting, you know, five days or a week or more to get the uh, American racing yeah, news American, or yeah. whatever it was. Now the now you think about it on a, on a Saturday morning, they're reading about what happened Friday night, and they couldn't get enough of it. And it and it of course it charged me up and made me more excited and so I just went you know I, I tried to rein it in a little bit because I knew I couldn't get out of hand because I was only one person now I got I got other people who contributed and sent me send me stories or covered races kind of for me but uh but yeah and it just started from there so that was in the April of 95 or yeah April of 95 I guess and it just went um and then I just kept going, and it was great. I mean, you know, later on that summer, I got my first credit, my first press credential to go cover a race at West Plains, and it was and it was on. Then you know, I was you know going to Eldora, going to all the big races, and and it was it was great. Did you make any money on it at all? Did you ever sell an ad or anything? Because I don't really recall seeing anything. I don't. Did you ever monetize it or no? No, I mean I sold some. Uh, and I didn't make any much money on it. I sold, I think some, some of the uh, magazines and newspapers would reprint some of my stuff and I would get paid for that. But no, I never, it was never, never an advertising thing or anything. And I think somewhere in my head, that's what it was eventually going to be. But it was a little bit overwhelming. I mean, here I am working a full-time job and trying to do this. And believe me, I put a lot of time in certain news digest. And I think at some point, I think what happened is what I wanted to happen. I was going to force my way into this industry yeah. and create a job for myself somehow. Um, and that wasn't looking especially promising. And then some, somewhere in my world, I knew that that was not likely or that there was, it's not like there's like a million jobs out there for <laughs> what I would love to do. And so for it to all turn out like it did, I worked, you know, worked at National Dirt Digest and then, and then, uh, and then with Dirt on Dirt, it's, it's, 
I'm sure my dad probably sits around and thinks, "Oh my goodness, I never <laughs> thought you would make it." Well, and I so. want to keep I want to keep banging the drum on this, and you you kind of answered the question I had. Imagine you know it's in the mid 1990s, and someone, and not just someone, but someone who is incredibly, insanely as talented as Todd. It's one thing. There's listen. There's plenty of hobo people out there trying to cover the sport right now that don't know what the hell they're doing. Todd is an A plus talent. He comes out of the blue. And suddenly in your inbox, there is original Dirt Late Model reporting, and it's ESPN-like quality. I can't, like, I truly cannot describe to people what that was like at the time. And you touched on how much people ate it up. I, to me, it, it, like, it deserves like a little a, a paragraph or a page or a block in the Dirt Late Model Hall of Fame for literally changing Dirt Late Model media ever. I believe it was that revolutionary. And it sounds like you just kind of had your head down so much at the time, you know, 25 years later, can you appreciate that? How revolutionary it was? I I can in a way. I, I do. What's funny, and again, this goes back to explaining this to young people. But I would run into, say, middle aged folks. I remember this guy particularly at East Bay, and this is one of the first speed weeks I covered, which was gold for me to go down yeah. there and cover all that stuff and send that. You know, because before speed week, maybe even the papers weren't even published weekly yet. So sometimes speed week was this thing that happened in the winter and then you heard about it in April or something. So to do speed week was huge for me. And I remember running and I was coming out of the bathroom in East Bay and some guy accosts me and it's like, are you the one that does that dirt news digest? <laughs> I, I guess I was putting up a sign or something to try to get subscribers. And he's trying, he doesn't really want to know how to subscribe. What he wants me to do is tell him how, how, now, how do I buy this computer? How do I get? How do I get this email? He he didn't understand anything about the internet oh, or God. anything. So he literally he wanted he wanted this so bad that he was going to go out and buy a whole computer setup and go get get online. And, and but that's the thing you were kind of dragging these people into the into the internet age. And, you know, our sport, it's always running eh, about 10 years behind. So it, it was a dragging people, literally. You're, but, po you're positive yeah. that wasn't my dad, right? You're positive it wasn't Barry Rigsby you were talking to outside the bed. I'm pretty, pretty sure it wasn't. But, well, could be. But we that would know. be funny. <laughs> Give me your, um, what is your funniest battling technology moment with Dirt News Digest back in the day? Because you always have this funny story at West Plains about a fax machine that amuses me. And I don't know if that's it, but what was your funniest one? <laughs> Um, probably the best one is after I covered a race. I think it was after I covered, uh, I was coming home from speed week. Uh, Valdosta ran a Saturday night race, like against Volusia or wow. something. So in, instead of staying all the way through speed week to Volusia, I, I kind of was heading home and went to Valdosta on that last Saturday night. And I remember I went up the road a little bit to this hotel in Georgia and again, this isn't, you know, today every, every hotel has Wi-Fi, every hotel makes every effort to make you, the, for the business traveler, well, uh, I needed to get online, but I needed to use the telephone to actually, I know it sounds archaic, doesn't it, <laughs> to, to plug in the telephone line, the little RJ45 connector, and here I am, you know, a lot of hotels would hardwire their phones so I couldn't get it, I, I guess that's what happened at this hotel. So I went to the desk hoping that they had a, a phone where it was disconnected, where it would disconnect. But for some reason, I couldn't go behind the desk because they didn't want me there. But so I'm like, 
I'm on a table and there's my phone line going across the <laughs> across the desk and there's people like crawling under it and I'm sitting here and, and you're hearing beep up beep up and all that and it's and I'm just uh, like what am I doing but it was you know but back then to get to get online when I needed to was just I mean it was just like a huge relief because that was you know here I have I have this report I've got to get it out. And it was, you know, you go through all kinds of crazy things to make it happen. Listen, getting online is still a relief to me sometimes, okay? <laughs> Even 25 <laughs> years later. Um, from Dirt News Digest, you, you end up at National Dirt Digest, Brian and Carolyn McLeod's newspaper, of course. And I think we all agree it is the greatest print publication in the history of dirt late model racing. Uh, so it's 95 you start Dirt News Digest. When do you get to NDD? When, when was that? What year? Um, so the summer of 98, okay. which is just a few weeks after they started publishing. Okay. And I, I think, again, appreciation what Brian and Carolyn had there and you and some of the other folks that were on that team, that paper was really good, wasn't it? Um, I, I loved it. I mean, yeah, it, it was, it was a little bit hard. I remember coming back from, I would call it an interview, but Brian basically said, listen, if you're crazy enough to move here and take this job, it's yours, you know? <laughs> but, but, but there was some kind of interview, and I kind of remember calling my dad at some rest area on the way back to North Carolina to, you know, talk about my job prospects. I'm like, I guess I'm going to take it because that's what I want to do. And, and the, you know, the job, the pay was low, and, the, you know, I was starting on the bottom again. And here I am, I guess I was 30 or almost 30 at that point. But it was what I wanted to do, and it was, uh, and it was a great publication because they had already accomplished the asphalt short track late model stuff, and so they started this dirt paper. So they kind of had the framework of how to do this down. So it wasn't like we were starting something from scratch. It, it had the the uh, the asphalt paper, and it's already kind of built in advertising behind it. And the dirt paper soon took off and far surpassed the asphalt paper. Which we all kind of figured it would, I think. But it was a, it was an excellent publication, and Tim, Tim and Susan Lee worked there yeah. with me, and uh, and Brian, you know, Brian's still out there beating the highway. Yeah. He, he's unbelievable. And Carolyn, of course, does a lot of scoring now. But we we have some tales from back then too. That was a that was a <laughs> lot of fun. And uh, one one thing about that, as I said, I was a sports copy editor at Owensboro newspaper. When I went to uh, National Dirt Digest, eventually I became the layout editor there too. And I really like that. I mean, I'm I know people think kind of I'm a reporter, but really I'm more of a kind of an in the office guy. That's what that's where my first love lies. You know, kind of managing or organizing a publication, and to do the layout there was just it was so fun and you know to have you know to do it in in the sport i loved and, and to do all those uh with all the pictures and do the big races and really you know like do the full uh special section for the summer nationals preview or special section for the bell door million that that stuff was just it was so fun when you would do todd the special section stuff like your summer and i'm staring at some national dirt digest on my wall in my studio right now and i have a bin with at least 400 of them back in the storage room but when you would do that special stuff like summer nationals index which a lot of those themes you have carried over to dirt on dirt now um and a lot of the things you see on dirt on dirt are back to your credit to you back in the day at national dirt digest the way you were laying things out but when you would 
when you would do that special stuff, it was as if this like perfect alien human being had landed on the planet or alien had landed and they were meant to cover dirt late model racing and it was only designed for me. There was no way another human being on the planet could truly appreciate what the hell you were doing in that paper. And I would, I mean, that, that, that summer nationals index stuff, I would just drink it up. I, it's, you know, I, I say it all the time. You're probably too good for the us in this sport. You're, it just was, and I don't even really have a question there. That's just me telling you how damn good that stuff was back in the day. And I, and one thing I was going to carry that over to is, I know because you worked there, and I'm sure you probably got one in the mail or you just took one from the office. I wish you could have a true appreciation for how great it was to receive a National Dirt Digest in the mail. On Friday mornings, I would miss first hour in high school all the time because the mail would come at 8.20 and first hour started at 8 o'clock. I'd miss it all the time so I could get my National Dirt Digest and take it to study hall with me that day. I wish you could have a true appreciation for what that felt like back in the day, Todd, because it was incredible. Well, I apologize to your first period teacher <laughs> for sure, but uh, I, I think I, I'm not sure I can the same way, but I do know that it frustrated me to see, you know, Mid-American and those other papers, they would have, they have the chance to do something beyond what they were doing. And I knew that that, you know, working in the regular newspaper world, I worked with some fantastic uh, journalists and reporters and editors and people I went to school with who I'm still friends with today who who taught me things and I you know I just bought Moses I learned it and, and it's kind of the thing of like man if I ever got a hold of a racing paper here's the kind of things I would want to do and to be able to do that I mean it was just yeah it was just to make it into a real a real publication to tr- and treat the sport uh, the way it would be. I think what drove me crazy the most about like Mid American. I'm sorry, Nancy, or if anybody's still around, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm not trying to bag on them, but it, it would drive me crazy that it'd be like you know, so and so wins the World 100, and then like below that, like uh, Johnson wins Mini Stock Race at <laughs> you know Paragon. I'm like, I'm like, these are not the same. You know, you need to have a news judgment for telling people what's important. And, and with National Dirt Digest, we could really do that by blowing out the big races, uh, but still including the little agate, you know, news stories of all the weekly stuff and all that. You know, everything has its place, but but you need to help the reader with what's important. You know, hey, this is a big deal. This isn't, you know, whatever it is. And we've carried so much of that over to Dirt on Dirt now. And by the way, nice use of the word agate. For those that don't know what agate is, box score is basically what agate is. Details, but without a fleshed out story. I haven't heard agate in a long time. Um, The entire time you're at National Dirt Digest, um, you and I had become friends by that point. Do you remember the first time you met me, by the way? Because it was long before I believe you got to National Dirt Digest. Do, Do you remember the first time we met, where it was, what year it was, et cetera? Um, you know, this story, I feel like has become a pro- apocryphal now, <laughs> which, you know, I, I, I feel like, and, and I may not be exactly right, but we're near, near the scale at West Plains, maybe in 95 or yep. six, I can't remember which year during the show me 100 weekend. And, and I guess, I don't know, and that's the thing. It clouds me a little bit because I've heard your versions of it too, <laughs> and it throws me off a little bit. But but I remember you coming up and just like, you know, hey, you know, you tell. 
basically saying the same things you're all saying now about how much you love, you know, you love the Dirt News Digest and all that stuff. And, and uh, yeah, that was great. I mean, it, 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 it's funny. And then, of course, we began a relationship there, you know, I guess kind of by email or via Dirt News Digest. And then, and then you went on to, to help us out at National Dirt Digest, too, which was, uh, you know, obviously the, the relationship that we had that became what it is today and, and that you drug me along uh, to help <laughs> you with dirt on dirt.com. We're no, gonna... not in a bad way. I mean, I'm, I'm glad you had, I mean, I'm glad I was there. We're going to get to I that. Missed out on that, it would have been terrible. The earliest back I can trace is Oh four. You and I, it was 90. I think it was 95 at West Plains, your first year of dirt news digest. But the earliest back I can remember Oh four is when you and I started talking about the idea of dirt on dirt. I'm sure we probably oh. kicked around like the concept of it before that, but really kind of like hashing out like the idea of it was my senior year of college, I think. And you and I were just so, and this is very funny to say it, right? We were both such proponents of the internet, which is hilarious. <laughs> it's just a hilarious thing to say. But you and I both knew it was the way things were headed and that if we could just somehow figure out how to cover the sport in this instantaneous fashion, that it would be revolutionary. Uh, we had some lead-up meetings in 06, and then in 07, the year we launched. Do, but do, I was going to ask you this. I don't know that I've ever asked you this exact question. Do you remember the moment that you actually decided in your mind, yep, we're doing it. We're, we're, we are doing this. Do you remember that? I, actually, it was probably in 04 or 05. And, and I knew that we weren't going to do it this week, but <laughs> but I knew that we had to do this. And I knew that we, you know, we we had kind of, we were germ- we had germinated this thing and we were, we were slowly kind of bringing it along and waiting till the time could work. The, the night I remember, I know this sounds crazy that it's this specific, but the night that, uh, that uh, uh, Steve Hillard ran over Darren Miller at Farmer City <laughs> and, and wrecked, wrecked him on the last lap of the Summer Nationals race. I remember specifically that night driving home. I think if I was staying in Louisville that night, I drove home to Louisville and I went ahead and wrote my story. And I sent that story to you at like six in the morning. And I said, this is the kind of stuff that we will have up immediately on, you know, on our yet to be named uh, <laughs> website. And this is the kind of stuff that will drive it, you know, and, and, it, and it would have, you know, that's the kind of, you know, that was a huge thing. You know, um, Miller was mad. He came over to Hillard. Hillard was, you know, ho- probably figuring that Miller was going to attack him. But it was a huge night at Farmer City. And to be able to, you know, provide. You know, and as it turned out, we would have had video, video interviews, a story, all that stuff. I could envision it that night. And and that was a couple of years before we really got serious about it. But I think then I knew that we were going to do it. If someone was to just come up to you out of the blue and say, what do you remember about the early days of Dirt on Dirt? Uh, like once we founded the website, what, what would you say? Uh, I... <laughs> I, I should have a better answer, but I really don't know how we did it. Yeah, I, I look back, and I'm, and and me and my my wife Julie talk about this sometimes. She was traveling a lot then too. I, I felt like we passed each other. You know, we barely <laughs> saw each other for a few years, and it was you know the, but just the you know, we, but we had to make this work, and we had to kind of do 110. percent We had to do 
everything we were supposed to, and then and then some to like, you know, kind of win over the skeptics and to you know make it make it worthwhile, make uh, these subscribers who were believing in us from the beginning to make it worthwhile. And I and I'm actually remember looking, you know, you write a story or you post something, and then we look at look at the subscriber. Ooh, we got three subscribers today. <laughs> yeah. And I know that sounds quaint, but it really was. It, it kept uh, you going, you know. It kind of like, hey, this is this is gonna work, you know. And 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 in them, we counted subscribers in the tens and the dozens. And now I look at, you know, the people that come to watch the, you know, this this the the live stuff on Flow and 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 the on demand stuff, the dirt on dirt, and the, you know, the numbers are just, you know far beyond what I ever thought it could be. And it's really gratifying. I just, it, it, the last thing I want to say about that, because I, I mean, I could do three hours with you on your, the way you've shaped our sport, but it, you know, I really do want to pat ourselves on the back, me and you and Amber, right? It was the three of us. There's no doubt about it. It was the three of us that made this thing happen in the beginning. And I do believe, and I, I'm prepare yourselves, everybody, because this is a huge pat on the back for ourselves, but I'm going to do it because it's me and Todd talking. I really do think we changed the sport forever. Our sheer desire to make sure as many people could know about and learn about dirt late model racing, I think we changed the sport forever because we wanted everyone out there, and this is what I tell people, whether it's you know, whether it's a series that grumbles to me sometimes about the amount of coverage we do or this, that, the other, too much or too little, all we ever cared about was that other people cared about this thing that we loved so much. We were the loudest mouthpiece and megaphone for this thing that has ever existed, in my opinion. Have you ever really stepped back and soaked that in, that, that what we did probably could never happen again? It could never be replicated again? Well, definitely our timing was, was right for, yeah. for all this whole conversation we've had, the way things fell into place. But yeah, I think you're right. I think it's because we were wanting to give people what we would have wanted yeah. if we were sitting at home, you know, and, and I think that's what it comes down to. You know, we just, you know, and again, I, it, it, a little bit was dumb luck, you know, things were imperfect. We we stumbled along and, and figured out what how it worked, but it was, uh, but yeah, that's what the, the main thing is. We We wanted to provide what we knew we would want as dirt late model fans and it's uh, uh and that's kind of what how we we always steered that direction as i get to the final few questions here before we do true or false you know we say all the time when we're sitting around at three o'clock in the morning and we're just we're ripping something apart in the sport and you and i have done a lot of 3 a.m nights together derek has been right there with us amber was there with us people should listen to this uh, people should listen to this we should record this if they could hear us say this so i'm going to give us that chance now uh, throw out a topic for me, and I'm really putting you on the spot here, and let's just be honest about it and just riff on it for a minute as if it was a, a 2008, a topic doesn't have to be 2008, but if it was a, a 3 a.m. night in some crappy hotel in East Tennessee somewhere and you and I are just ripping about something, give me a topic and we'll <laughs> we'll go for a few minutes on it. Oh my goodness, this could get ugly. Um I, I I don't know. It just is in my mind now. It's just like the efficiency of programs oh, and how God's late sake. the late nights of of racing. <sighs> I mean, I, I do remember those nights when you those nights rarely when you just for whatever reason. Oh, we're done at nine thirty. Like I remember me and you, we finished the 
at Waynesville, Ohio, probably the last late mile race they had there in 15 the, years in ago. The daylight, and, in the daylight. In the daylight. And we left. Yeah, we left, and it was still dusk, and it was just like, this is the way it's ought to be. And I know that was an extreme, but but really, you want to leave at 10, you know? that's The baseball game starts at 7. The baseball game ends at 10, you know? that That's when you want to leave. And I think especially working on this sport, a lot of times we would complain about those late nights because it was just, it was brutal for us. I mean, somebody made this point the other day, and maybe Robert said this about, you know, that the, the, the media people were kind of like their food guys, you know. You don't see kind of the stuff that we do because we have to do stuff before. We have to actually go to the event. Then we have to do lots of stuff afterwards. And and, and 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 so as a personal beef about late nights and inefficient programs, you know, ending at 1 a.m. is just devastating to your psyche, you know, and, and for your health eventually, you know. There are some Not people, good. you know, I think Rick does a good job at Lucas, Rick Schwally, series director of understanding that. Um, him and I have been spent 100 nights in a press box together complaining about it too. Uh, there are some people out there that get it, but God damn it. I just, it feels like, Todd, 13 years after we started this website, we should be better at efficiency. And as an industry, from 2007 till now, are we 25% better at efficiency? If that's the number, it should be 75%, don't you think? Yeah, I do think it is better. The the higher profile and bigger thing. I think the problem is, and I completely understand why this happens, when, especially at the big races, which we tend to have a bigger focus on. So you want those to, to be, palatable and to end at a good time but but the problem is is track x has its big race hey this is our big weekend and so they want to cram all the things into it and they want to do everything i know we want to do this pre-race and we want to do this and we want to do that and then all of a sudden they lose track of the fact that you know it's just not it's not as appealing now one thing i will give a lot of these tracks you know people that are camping on the ground what do they care yeah. you know if you do if you have thousands of people there that are camping on the ground i give it to you a little bit because they are they literally are stumbling over to a tent or whatever and and going to sleep it's not the same as you know drive everybody's driving an hour away after the race but but still overall we've gotten better but we will never be good enough i mean it, it should never be a pursuit that ends to make track, uh, to make uh, nights go quicker and to be more efficient. I've got three or four questions I want to ask you before we finish up with true and false. Um, it's stuff I've always kind of wanted to ask you, but I never have. In your 30 plus year career, um, what is the, 20, I guess 25, 30, you've been around late my race in 30 years, 25 plus. What is the one night at the track, if you could go back and relive it and you could just be dropped in via time oh. machine and you could relive it, what's that night? I mean, it's easy. I, I know this. I've, I've beat this like a dead horse, but the, the Shannon Babb not winning uh, the Summer Nationals race at Macon when he was light in 97 is just, I, I feel like I remember it and I certainly wrote about it and I've talked about it and I've talked to people who've been there and I've even seen the video again. But to be there and to like, you know, to see all that happen again, and it was almost like, I know it sounds crazy, but it was almost like I was outside myself watching it happen when it happened. <laughs> so, so, and to briefly tell the story, so, so, oh my God, I guess we do have to tell the whole story. 
Um, <laughs> you, so, so yeah, go Bab, ahead. Ba- okay. So Bab, Bab is not going to make the race because his. I think I don't know where he was starting, but he was clearly a favorite at making. He had a chance of uh, uh, a chance to win in his own car. Well, before the race, something happens. His car goes to the infield, and he he's climbing out of it. He's done. And uh, and everybody's like, you know, everybody's deflated, and it's horrible. Uh, and I'm sorry, but I, I'm I'm blanking on it. What's the guy? What's the guy's name? Virgil uh, Bilbrey. Who can Virgil? I'm sorry, I'm sorry, Virgil. I can forget I forget the key part of the story. So Virgil Bilbrey, you know, I always think about this when I go to there. I'm like, why wouldn't this guy let this guy drive his car? You know, that kind of thing. Well, Virgil Bilbrey thought exactly that. <laughs> He pulls to the infield, gets out of his car, and lets Bab get in it, and he's going to start on this tail. And we're not talking about oh, he pulled in, he he climbed into a, like a, a a race winning car. I mean, he pulled in, he he climbed into a junker. I mean, this thing was a this thing was for a hundred lapper at Macon. It was three laps down at best. I mean, it was not a good car. But here it is. Bab comes out on starts on the tail, and of course he comes comes all the way through wins the race or takes the checkers and of course he weighs in light because Virgil was a big guy. Shannon back then was not at all a big guy and they probably, uh, there's probably 80 pounds difference in their weight and of course Shannon weighs in 50 pounds light and and loses. But the whole story and the whole thing of watching them switch cars and him come through the field and people being aware of what was happening was, was just uh, it, it was one of the most Cinderella things that, that I've ever written about or, and I'll never, I mean, the next night I remember everybody was talking about it at Farmer City. I mean, it was just, it was just unbelievable. That's what old school summer nationals, what made it so great. And the super Shep thing, right. Is you have this lightning in a bottle that happens on a Wednesday and the next night on Thursday, you all see each other. Right. And all everybody wants to talk about is that to me, the, the true essence of what the summer nationals once was, is that, um, speaking of that, you and I have this romantic attachment, I'll call it to that 88 through 2002 ish era of dirt late model racing. And 2002 might be stretching it a little far, but at least up to 2000, uh, people tell me all the time, you're crazy, it wasn't that great, the racing wasn't as good, and it might not have been, oh. but I think I'm right, and I think that we are right, it's the most unique and special era in our sport, 87, 88, all the way through about 02, why is that? Because I think we're right about that, and people disagree with me, but there is something so romantic about that time. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm worried about that, because... I guess it depends on what you like. I remember, in, uh, to, to preface this, I remember back uh, being at Kanksy, maybe back in the early 90s, and seeing Bob Marcos, who, who is, I don't know how much older than he is, and older than me he is, but he's been around a long time, kind of a dirt late model, model historian. And I remember, and he always felt like he would always say, oh, these were the good old days, you know? Yeah. And I'd be kind of look at him. I'm like, I don't, I don't know about that. I'm like, this is pretty good or whatever. But so I don't want to be like, and I'm not saying Bob was wrong. I mean, he saw some unbelievable stuff for sure. But, but, but I do worry a little bit about, you know, what, if you think about too much nostalgia, I, I, I will say that era well, for whatever reason, you know, everybody likes a lot of cars. I mean, I know you don't have to have more than twenty-four to have the race, but man, in those in the, Ugh. I guess in the late in the late nineties, uh. some of those 
I mean, I, this is embarrassing, but like they'd have a Northern All Stars race, paying two thousand to win somewhere, and they'd have fifty cars, uh, six heats, I mean, just, just oh god, and, and really good cars. I mean, you felt bad for the guys. I mean, I guess I didn't then, because I didn't think about it. But I mean, there's lots of guys who never made a feature because it was just loaded. You know, those even lower level races. But but yeah, that era, uh, and also I like the slower kind of the slower cars. I mean, I'm, I'm not anti-technology. I think the cars are unbelievable today, but I think it makes passing more difficult. And, and it's almost like we, we, I don't know about engineering. That may be, that's kind of a buzzword. I wouldn't say that, but, but the cars are so good and they stick to the ground so well and stuff now that it, it's a, it's a different racing game. If you dial up YouTube and look at Farmer City in 1994, those cars are like sliding all over the track <laughs> because they're not stuck to it. And, and I know you could criticize it. Oh, look at that. That's terrible. But man, the racing, when it was slippery, the racing was so good, you know? If you're having a dirt late model draft and you can only choose guys that are under the age of 30, who are your top five picks? Oh, um, so Shepard, Pierce. Oh my goodness, this is tough. Five guys. Top five. Drivers only? Drivers only. Drivers pick a, no crew guy? No. Uh, okay. <laughs> no. This uh, is not, we'll do the crew guy draft on next year on the Rigsby Report with you. <laughs> Shepard and Pierce are locks, uh, right? Of course. Yeah. Oh my goodness. I'm afraid I'll leave somebody out here. Um, oh my. Um, I guess I like Tyler Herb. We're gonna have to, I'm going to have to coach him up a little bit, but I like him. <laughs> I, he 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 he's got the fire. He I mean, does. Like Me too. Um, um. Oh my goodness! Now I need two more. Devin <laughs> Moran. Uh, I like Devin Moran. I'll take him. I mean, you like the guys with the national. I mean, I would like to pick like some sixteen-year-old who who we don't know is going to be a, a superstar. And I guess Brandon does Brandon Overton slide under the radar if he twenty if he's under yeah he's under twenty nine yeah yeah. I'll take him. He'll be my old guy. <laughs> Listen, I'd kill to be 29 again. Uh, that was good. That's the, that is the correct top five, by the way. I just was making sure you get it. Uh, best under-the-radar track people have either never heard of or slightly heard of that they must attend. Well, I, I'm going to cheat here because I have to talk about how good West Plains was back in the day. And I think maybe if you go there, they could still have that good racing. But, man... Those show me back in the day, that that kind of slippery racing, as I talked about before, I love, I love West Plains. I guess now it is a little bit under the radar because it's been a long time since they've hosted a, a lot we, of big races. We got to talk to Gary. It's got they've got to change the name back to West Plains Motor Speedway, right? I mean, it just it it it, it, I, it it will always be that to me, and I cannot call it anything else. Yeah, I, I agree. And and also, note to anyone out there, if you're going to change the name of your track, go ahead and run it by me, and I'll, I'll let you know. Uh, Actually, so West Plains, uh, it always is. <laughs> Todd, if I've always said I want to be the commissioner of Dirt Late Model Racing, you will be in charge of naming rights under my uh, commissioner reign. Okay, you can you can be in charge of that. Uh, last one, Bloomquist or Moyer? I, I think Bloomquist, but... But for the kind of racing I like, I think Moyer, uh, Bloomquist, you can't argue with the big races and the money and all that stuff he's won. And he, he just, he has willed himself to, to some of these unbelievable wins. But man, when you were out there on the summer nationals 
or out there who who knows where these tracks that Moyer was out there winning night after night. It was just hard to it was hard to imagine anybody being better than him when he was at his best. So so I guess it's it's one A and one B I guess. But 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 I I kind of Moyer's more of my kind of guy I think as far as you know when I was a fan especially watching him win way back then. Quick point on this: Is there another sport or industry where <clears throat> the top two? There, I don't. I, I'm sorry. There are no other debates about who the two greatest drivers ever are. No offense to Larry Moore or Jeff Purvis or Charlie Schwartz or Freddie Smith. These are the top two. I don't care who you put three through five. Is there another sport or industry on the planet where the one A and one B are so clearly defined as dirt late model racing? I I don't think so. I mean, I don't know about all these other sports, but no, I don't. I don't see how it could be. It, it is. It, it's funny how it's so. It's so explicit. There's no, it's not a, yeah, there's not a whole lot of hemming and hawing about it. I mean, it's just kind of what it is. Now, maybe, you know, if we get old or, or way down the line, it'll be interesting to see how that changes. But but certainly there there's an era in this sport when it began, and I think we're still in it, when it's those two guys. You know, everybody knows it. We end every report. We end every Rigsby report, I should say, with uh, true or false, five true or false questions. I might have six for you, too. I might have thrown a bonus one in there. So let's do it now. True or false with Todd Turner to wrap up what's really been an incredible interview. All right, Todd, true or false? Jimmy Owens is a top five dirt late model driver of all time. I'll say right now false, but I would. uh, But again, I'm a history guy. So I need I need a length of time to pass. So I, I so so right now I would say false. But Jimmy, don't don't call me. You're <laughs> you're right there. You're right there. You're knocking on the door at six for sure or whatever. But, but you know I, I need a little history. I need a little time to pass so we can evaluate things later on. You need a little marination. That's fair. So your answer is yeah. false. I I think I I think true. I think he's a, at least the fifth best ever. But we'll we'll go false for you. True or false. Dirt late model racing will be in a stronger place in 10 years than it is now. True or false? I would say true um, with a caveat that maybe on the higher end it will be better. And in some of the lower ends, maybe people will be disappointed. But I would say true overall. If you, if the top level of the sport is, is doing well, I think you can – you know, that, that that's where you're, you're going to look at it anyway. So, yeah, yeah, I would say true. True or false, Brownstown Speedway, which I know you love, from 1988 to about 1995 was the place to watch dirt late model racing in America, perhaps even the epicenter of the dirt late model world. True or false, Brownstown 88 to 95? True. I, I love that track. And, and they can still have good races now, but back then with the I love the no wall thing. And I know a lot of people don't get to go to a lot of tracks without the walls, but that just sets Brownstown apart. And when that little track was super slick and, and guys would be, you know, doing, doing that thing we talked about, I don't even know how to call it, but when you want to slid kind of off, off the front stretch, you were kind of racing on the half mile dirt or horse track. And then they would come slinging back on to turn one by jumping a curb, basically. It was it was like they were off the track every lap, but that was the fast way around. It seems crazy that that's possible, but but that was fantastic. Rick Hawkland doing that, you know, 
I remember specifically him. Lots of people did it, but I remember him doing it one night to win, and it was uh, it was something else. So yeah, true. I'm a Brownstown. Uh, <laughs> I'm a I'm a lover. True or false? The golden era of dirt late model racing ended the night of the very famous 2006 World 100. That was the final night of the golden era of dirt late model racing. <laughs> um. I would say it ended in an era. True or false is hard to answer on that. Uh, I'm sorry. True or false are the only acceptable answers, Todd. (laughs) I was just kidding. (laughs) Uh, True. It did end in an era. I'm not sure about the golden era. Again, I think we need a little more time to to see how the next era, how all the eras fit together, you know, down the road. True or false, dirt late model racing is the purest form of motorsports on the planet. I would say true. I mean, it, it's just, it's, I know you could get a lot of people arguing from a lots of different disciplines about that, but, but I think that's kind of what I, what has drawn me to it. And it's just so, yeah, it's pure, pure is a good word. It just seems like the essence of racing. And, and I know it's big time now and it has all these fancy stuff and, and all the engineering and all that stuff, but it's still to make those, those cars go around the track like they do and stock cars. It's just like, that's what I grew up loving to watch. And it's just, uh, it's neat where it's come. Final true or false. I did give you a bonus one. At least once a year, you think, I can't believe Rigsby talked me into this. <laughs> um, false. <laughs> false. Lies. False. <laughs> um, uh, no, not. Not at all. Although if I would have thought about it more, maybe I would have uh, maybe had a different answer. But but no, it was uh, dirt on dirt. I mean, what a yeah. I mean, what a great what a what a fun and it's so fun. All these all these people we work with now, the Flow Racing folks, and then you know Derek and all the guys that have been around and and working come on board whenever they did. It's just it's great to have them kind of see what you know, be part of this thing. It's, it's, it was fantastic uh, to get it going. And it's even, uh, as I said, more gratifying to see where it's gone. That was the last question. Did I miss anything, Todd? Is there anything I, I didn't ask you that you thought I was going to, or you, were you sitting on something just waiting for something or did, did I get it all in there? Do you think? <laughs> uh, I was hoping the true and false questions would be easier. I think, mostly. <laughs> oh, <clears throat> I wanted to challenge your intellect a little bit. So, you know, I mean it when I say this, and I really, professionally, there has been no bigger influence on me, and personally, you are you are one of the best human beings that I've ever met, and I mean that when I say that. You have been a driving force behind everything I have done in my career, and you are one of the most important figures in the history of Dirt Late Model Racing, and I mean that to my, to my bones and into my core, and I wanted to tell you that publicly, I, and not that people don't know that I think that about you already, but I wanted to say it, you know, publicly for you to hear. You've your influence on me will go far beyond our days when we're no longer covering dirt late model racing. Um, and I'm sure your wife, Julie would laugh a little bit if she heard all this praise being heaped on you. I can just hear Julie saying, Oh my goodness, what are you talking about? <laughs> but I mean, I mean every word of that, buddy. I really do. Yeah, that's really nice. I mean, I, I look back and see pictures of us starting dirt on dirt <laughs> and man, I mean, I look young and I'm old and you look really young. You and Amber are so fresh faced and, and uh, it's neat to see, to watch, because I've got to watch you grow professionally, which is very, 
a very neat thing. You know, not everybody gets to see somebody kind of like go go from the beginning of their career into their prime and, and really shine like you have. So it's uh it's been great to uh great to be part of that and to watch watch you uh mature. I mean I'm not saying you're as good as Brandon Shepherd, but you <laughs> you have matured very well. <laughs> I wanna thank I wanna thank Todd Turner. I wanna thank Derek Cast. I'll I'll pr- I'll put do a victory <laughs> speech like Brandon gets in. I wanna thank Derek for all his hard work. Derek and Todd and Kevin and the crew. And I'll just I'll work on that. Well, listen, yeah, in the beginning, uh, you, you know, I was, geez, I was 20, um, 24 when we started this, right? And an idiot. I mean, you're an idiot when you're 24. Um, and I made the mistake that every 24-year-old thinks and thinking they know everything about everything. And I didn't know anything about anything, you know? Uh, so I appreciate that. I'd like to think that I've matured. I made plenty of mistakes along the way. Um, but uh here we are, man. 2020. And what a year, right? <laughs> what a year to be having this conversation in general. Yeah, it's been great. I appreciate you uh, interviewing me. It was fun. All right. Thanks, Todd. I appreciate it, bud. Take care. How does PPM Racing consistently produce such high-quality parts? They start with a good, strong design. Then they make it out of the highest-quality American materials and they use the smartest, strongest techniques. PPM does this with every single part they make, every single time they make one. So when you're using PPM parts, what you'll have is just built better than anything else you've been doing before. PPM Racing Products. Thanks to Todd. That was awesome. Just It was so much fun. Um, they've got that rev thing out there right now where you can pay dirt track personalities to do zoom calls or whatever. Todd should be the most expensive. People should pay Todd Turner like a thousand bucks for 30 minutes on a zoom. And he's just dropping knowledge to them. I should have to pay him for the interview. Maybe I'll go, maybe I'll go pay him for the interview. We just did. Don't forget on the dirt on dirt side, our best of 2020 series rolls out this week. We've got top drivers, races, moments, finishes, and so much more. The drops on Wednesday, December 2nd. And with no gateway and no PRI, Derek and I have some cool content stuff planned here in the coming weeks from video casts to other neat pieces. We're going to make December count this year. Uh, and thanks for being patient with me. Like I said, it's been a wild 14 months, but we really are building something really incredible at Flow and, and by extension, Dirt on Dirt. Rigsby Report will be back in two weeks. Thanks, guys. Thanks, guys.